I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Ashley Vance is the New York Times bestselling author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future, and a feature writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's also the host of Hello World, a travel show that centers on inventors and scientists all over the planet. Previously, he worked as a reporter for the New York Times, The Economist, and The Register. His new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach, came out just a week ago on May 9th. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am glad that we are both glad that you're here. <laughs> Longtime listeners of this show know about my fondness for the term inciting incident, which describes the events that kickstart a story. It's a term you use in the prologue of your new book, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to talk about the inciting incident in your life that brought you to where you are today, now able to, in your own words, quote, scour the four corners of the world for stories, end quote, about science, technology, and invention. And specifically, what drew you to become so fascinated with space, the very heavens that are on sale today? In a talk at Google in 2015, you said, quote, you just kind of stumbled into tech journalism, end quote, after majoring in philosophy. You wanted to move to San Francisco and be a writer, and there were, quote, tons of reporter jobs open for anyone who wanted to be paid very little and work hard, end quote. In the same way, I think it's easier for all of us to identify the strengths and foibles in our friends than it is in ourselves. I think similarly, it's easier for writers to identify the motivations of their subjects than perhaps their own selves. But if I'm being honest, Ashley, the, the stumbling into tech journalism line just kind of caught in my brain because I just imagine that there's more there there. You're such an eloquent writer. You could have regaled us with stories about any number of the hundreds of topics one can report on, but you didn't. Why? You are the first person ever to ask me this. <laughs> I like it. Man, now you're making me think already from the get-go. I try. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer for as long as I can kind of remember. I'd always pictured writing the great American novel. I, I did a lot of short stories and poetry and things like that when I was growing up. I never wrote for the school paper. And so when I said I stumbled into journalism and tech journalism in particular, it was more along those lines that I was I was not a techie. I had never dreamed of doing nonfiction. I just wanted to live in San Francisco for a <laughs> summer and happened to find a job at a, a tech magazine during the dot-com boom. And then I ended up writing a lot of stories during this internship and got this addiction to breaking news and getting scoops and the immediacy of nonfiction and getting published. I'd say the deeper look at all this is, is I've always loved to write. I love people. My wife will tell you, I actually like being by myself a lot, but when I'm with people, I, I like just about everybody and I love to chat them up. And I think I found a job where I was able to channel these passions of writing and my my curiosity in humans. And over the years, I seem to have gravitated towards quite eccentric figures in the tech world, and it's still keeping me really happy. That's kind of the writing question. I could do the, the space question if you want. Yeah, well, you know, just on that point you just made, Ashley, towards the end of your book, or I suppose at the very end of your book, there's the thanks and acknowledgement section. And it's so people-focused. I feel like a lot of folks in the tech writing space, and this is understandable, are very much into the tech, 
they're into the actual ones and zeros of the things that are driving the technology themselves. There's almost an obsession there. And it's understandable. Of course, you want to be interested in the thing you're writing about. But your writing, your perspective on tech feels more analog. It's like I'm listening to vinyl, not an MP3. So it seems very much like what drives your writing about the tech space. Obviously, the tech is relevant, but you're very much interested in the people behind the tech, the thing behind the thing. Am I on point there? Very much so. As I was working my career up, I started in technology trade publications covering extremely nerdy things like data center storage and semiconductors and really the fundamental layers of the tech industry. And during that part, I was not a techie by trade. And so I just, I read textbooks. I read everything I could to be able to speak the language of the engineers because I didn't want to sound stupid when I was talking to them. I wanted to be able to converse with them. I wanted to know what I was writing about. And I built up this foundation. And then even when I went to places like the New York Times or The Economist, I was always the person who covered the geekiest stuff, things the editors, they would always tell me at the times like we're going to put this on the back of the business section because nobody's going to read about this open source programming language you've discovered. And, and they usually turned out to be wrong. And I think part of it was I built that foundation. And then to me, people and characters, it's the best way to tell a story. It's the most interesting thing to me. And so I've prided myself pretty much my whole career, I think, is finding fascinating people as a vehicle to explain these equally fascinating objects. And all of these machines and software, it's incredible, but it's really the people behind them and their motivations that, to me, make the stories interesting. And so very much, that's the way I approach this. I very much relate in my own small way to that feeling you must have felt when you were first starting out as a tech writer. I recently spoke with George Church. He's the co-founder of this company known as Colossal Biosciences. They're looking to de-extinct animals. Yeah, I know George. Fascinating work. Yeah, to say the least. He's known by some as the founding father of certain wings of genetic engineering. And just prepping for that conversation, I was filled with so much anxiety because I was just struggling not to sound like an idiot when talking to him, which I soon realized was basically impossible because you can never (laughs) compete with someone who has 50 years of experience in the field. But that feeling of terror when you're like, oh my God, I hope I don't say the wrong thing is something I very much relate to. But you know, something you just said there, Ashley, reminded me of something else you said in that Google talk, that the purely digital immaterial wing of the tech industry never quite appealed to you. You said, quote, I always wrote about companies that actually made things and that had factories, end quote. I love that distinction. And I want to drill down on it a bit with you. If you were born in 1877 rather than 1977, what stories, what innovations do you feel you'd be drawn to? What would you be writing about? Because I feel like that would be insightful. Well... It's an interesting year you pick. You know, I guess we're getting right on the edge of some major breakthroughs and things like electricity and and soon after that flight, even a couple rocket pioneers that people don't know about (laughs) are right right around there. The blissful thing about this age is the internet and planes and the fact that I can go anywhere in the world to find these stories. I happen to live in Silicon Valley where you can more or less fall out of bed and find somebody interesting to write about. If it was that time, I would hope I was living 
were born somewhere on the East Coast, I think, of the United States and, and had the luck to be what would feel like at that time, this incredible era. You know, we have all these cool things that are being invented today, but there's a pretty strong argument that people have made in the past that were quite far down the invention tree and, and that the real massive breakthroughs, AI to the side for a second, possibly came before it would be the chance of a lifetime to be there when some of these fundamental discoveries were being made that really, you know, obviously we take so much of this for granted now that altered the shape of the world forever. And so you're making me think, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like, would I rather be on the East Coast of the United States or would I like to be like in France or Germany or something like that? You know, that's a tough question. Maybe England. (laughs) The Wright brothers, their first powered flight took place in 1903. The Ford's first car, the Model A, debuted in 1903, a revolution in two different fields of transportation that happened simultaneously. I recently spoke with author Tim Urban of the wonderful Wait But Why website, who's also written about Elon Musk extensively. And he notes that there's been more technological and sociological advancement in the last 250 years than there has in the previous 10,000 years. It's all kind of just condensing. And that each passing year brings with it more advancement and that this trend just continues to accelerate. But to form a question for you, Ashley, these advancements, they often seem to cluster, you know, to happen in these concentrated bursts. And I imagine you've noticed this phenomenon in your travels for your Hello World series, you know, advancements in specific areas of technology that are happening concurrently. What is the chicken and egg here in your view? Is it tech availability that's driving potential innovators to flock to a given space? Or is it innovators clustering around a problem and that pushes a revolution in the tech? It's a complicated question to answer. The The place I know best is Silicon Valley because my first book was sort of a history of innovation on Silicon Valley and people have spent the last 30 years trying to reverse engineer Silicon Valley to make it happen in other locations, usually with pretty limited success. The confluence of things that had to happen here were incredible. You had, going back a little bit to the times you were talking about in the 1890s, early 1900s, you had these inventors who ended up in Northern California that a lot of people don't know about who just happened to be more or less like radio hobbyists, electronics hobbyists who were messing around. They they had the freedom to tinker in ways that their peers on the East Coast who were working for real electronics, early electronics companies didn't. You just had that frontier kind of Wild West sensibility to it. The California, Northern California has always had this boom and bust lifestyle to it where taking risk is the nature of things. And so you had this little layer of these fundamental electronics enthusiasts, the examples of which would be Hewlett Packard, which forms pretty early on, Philo Farnsworth inventing the television in a laboratory in San Francisco right about the same time HP was forming. People often forget this. And as time went on, A little bit of structure gets added around that, and then Stanford comes along, which adds a lot of structure to it. And this idea that university could work with these inventors and and create companies. And in the midst of all this, you've got good weather, a pretty place to live. There was not the same level of unions as there were on the East Coast. There was venture capital got invented. And so it's the sequence of events. 
what I've been doing, Hello World, has been fascinating to go around the globe and see really the places that are getting close to replicating some of this. And the two that jump to mind most immediately are Israel and China, where you have a tolerance for risk. You have these young, enthusiastic engineers. You have a couple generations of wealthy people who have formed venture capital companies that are willing to take bets on these things. It's a completely different attitude than I find when I go somewhere like, say, Europe or Australia, where there's almost this like self-limiting personality trait in the culture. It reminds me of a quote from your new book where you write, quote, beyond not celebrating its present, Silicon Valley does not celebrate its past. It has no time for history. When a tech giant falls from its position of dominance, a new company simply takes over its buildings and begins the cycle anew with no homage paid to the predecessor. The first transistor factory, the birthplace of the whole damned tech revolution, was turned into a fruit and vegetable shop years ago. And then that was ripped down to make way for yet another office building, end quote. And when I've traveled in Europe, I can't help but think when I'm walking around, while I'm admiring all the thousand plus year old buildings in the cobblestone streets, on one hand, I'm jealous because we just don't have that history here in America. The oldest things we have here in terms of modern buildings are what, 250, 300 years old at the most. And that's because we are a relatively new country. But also, there is something beautifully sad and also distinctly American about the phenomenon you're describing. The very thing that allows us to relentlessly innovate also drives us to have just a complete lack of reverence for our past. And I'm wondering, and I've asked this question to a couple other folks, and I don't know, is it possible to resolve that tension? Can a country, maybe this answer is in China because they have a very long history, but can a country have a reverence for its past without allowing itself to ossify and hinder future progress? Is that tension resolvable in your view? Sure, it's possible. (laughs) (laughs) I guess anything's possible. (laughs) I hate to generalize writ large on some of this stuff, but when I go to Europe, which, okay, look, they still make amazing things and there's all sorts of clever people, but there's a bit of like a, like you just described, a museum feeling to it all and a a sedateness and a complacency. And, you know, the life's pretty good there. (laughs) The more... The wealthier countries all seem to look the same. They're kind of these Scandinavian replicas of good living. And the U.S. still has this tension between the haves and the have-nots and the striving and just not looking backwards. And I tell people a lot, I mean, the worst thing about Silicon Valley is that Every startup, no matter what they make, says, hey, we're going to change the world. And, you know, it's, it's this incredible ambition for things that often are piddling little widgets or consumer entertainment. But that mentality serves the other companies that are real quite well. Whereas when I visit a lot of startups in other countries, they're sort of like, I hope everyone in our city hears about this or It'd be nice if everyone in Sweden used this thing. And from the get-go, they have the self-limiting outlook on possibility. And I think the U.S. clearly we're in such a strange time of polarization and where this country is heading. But there's still this clean slate mentality, this optimism that serves the U.S. incredibly well. China has some of that, although to me, when I go there and I see these young 
kids working at engineering centers, it's more of the capitalist part of the country has been opened up and there's this obvious opportunity to get ahead and they've tapped in to that energy. It reminds me a lot of early Silicon Valley of like the 80s and 90s when people were staying at the office all night and working on things. You see that everywhere in Shenzhen now. So maybe there's like this mix of the two. Although if you look at what's been happening politically in China over the last couple of years, I would argue that those historical roots may, may put an end to everything they've been heading towards. So perhaps you can't have it all. No, I suppose you can't. Culture is so important to innovation or sometimes lack thereof, as you're talking about here. But so much of culture is determined by both place and time. In Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, he talks about how Steve Jobs and Bill Gates became Steve Jobs and Bill Gates because they were born at the right time, at the right place. They were both born in 1955. The first personal computer, the Altair 8800, was released in 1975. That means Steve Jobs was 20, Bill Gates was 19. If they had been born a few years later, they'd be too young. They'd still be in high school. If they'd been born a few years earlier, they'd be employed probably at a place like IBM or doing something else entirely. Steve Jobs famously grew up in Cupertino where Hewlett Packard was operating in the 70s. So when I read about the chance encounter involving, quote, youthful space nerds, end quote, at the International Astronautical Congress in Houston back in 2002, I couldn't help but think about Gladwell's book. Based on your years of up-close, behind-the-seeds experience, how much of what is happening in the space industry today is a right-time, right-place phenomenon? A lot. (laughs) It's so funny to me because space seems like the most futuristic kind of thing and it's the closest stuff we have to sci-fi in a lot of ways and feels modern. But if you go back to the Apollo era and then fast forward, rockets and satellites, they in many ways barely change for decades and decades and decades. And you had this notion, which I argue in my book is somewhat artificial, that this had to be a government exercise, a nation state had to do space. And this was not a commercial enterprise. It was too hard, too expensive. And so much of this really just came out of World War II and a a bunch of historical reasons that I get into. But We were stuck in this mode until around 2008 when when SpaceX launches the Falcon 1 for the first time and some rich people had tried to do rockets before and had mild success, but Elon Musk and SpaceX were the first ones to really make a go of it and show that new things were possible and that consumer technology had improved to the point that it could be used in space and you could reduce all these costs around the rocket. And from that moment, that really opens up a lot of people's imagination and passion and all this kind of latent enthusiasm around space that had been squashed by how boring the industry had become. And To directly answer your question, though, no matter how much enthusiasm and money you had in the past, some of this would not be possible. What's interesting about this moment in time is is really how powerful our computing systems have become. Because yes, in 1960 or 1970, you might have needed thousands of engineers 
to pull some of these feats off. But today, a room full of 20 engineers on their powerful computers with access to their data centers can do the work of those thousands of engineers in the past. And at the same time, we've had huge advances in material science and and all kinds of electronics that go with this. And so this is the moment where this had to happen after decades of false starts. And it's also just so shockingly cheap, right? Like having been born and raised in California, whenever I travel to other parts of the country, specifically like the parts that aren't on the coast, I'm always shocked at how relatively affordable everything is from housing to food prices. And it's like, (laughs) if all you ever do is live in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York, you become accustomed to the idea that a a sandwich with turkey, you know, on rye is going to be like $18. And I imagine if that's all the exposure you ever have, you're going to be convinced that you can't make a sandwich and sell it for less than $18. But if you just get out for a little while and go to Ohio, it can blow your mind. And it seems like something similar was kind of happening here. A little bit, although one of the most surprising things about when I was first writing about SpaceX, because I was not a, I did not cover the space industry for a long time before embarking to write my biography on Elon. And I went to visit SpaceX for the first time and it's in Los Angeles. And I expected to see this tiny little factory with this company struggling to get along. And and right there, about five miles from LAX, There were thousands of people building multiple rockets in this giant factory. And I just thought to myself, I I was told we cannot manufacture things in California. How come this guy is making this rocket in basically downtown Los Angeles? This is all all working. And in my book, I write about another company called Planet Labs, which brought about a similar revolution in the cost and design of satellites. And they were also based in San Francisco and came out of NASA Ames, the Silicon Valley NASA Center. And I think there's other examples in the book that would very much back up your point. But as far as pushing this thing forward, giving it its initial energy impulse, It was more just the reduction in cost of our tools that were widely available that helped push this along than finding some outlier location to give it a go. And the mass production of a lot of the equipment and pieces that would go into something like a rocket. They don't all have to be made bespoke by some special person. You know, you can just literally buy them off the internet and kind of cobble something together. Right. I mean, this was the big revelation that SpaceX had and the commercial space industry has picked up on. There's this really funny thing that happened, like we were talking about with the space industry not changing much, where in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever decade you want to pick, there's the rocket, but then there's all the electronics that go on it. And if you wanted to send a radio to space, what happened was in the early days, they thought, well, this radio is probably going to break during the launch or, or during the harsh conditions in orbit. So we need to make this special radio. And it's going to cost a lot of money. And then once that thing was made, it got certified as space grade and some odd supplier in some state somewhere. They just made space grade radios and antennas for decades and charged $100,000 for one radio. 
And SpaceX came along and then planets and they, you know, they're like, hey, <laughs> things have, consumer electronics have come a, a really long way. Planet Labs was the first company that this is how they started just as a lark. They're like, I wonder what happens if we send a smartphone into orbit. Like Everyone says it'll break and not work. And they found a rocket and did this experiment where they sent some smartphones up into space. And it turned out they did work and they could take photos and they could communicate and, and all this technology could survive. And so this has been this huge awakening for space and the commercial space industry is that we can finally bring Moore's Law and everything that comes with it, all this advanced computing into space instead of relying on 20, 30, 40-year-old technology. And so this has been a, a revolution. Yeah. You're talking a little bit about SpaceX here, and you go into great detail about that company in your biography on Elon Musk. But in the prologue, or when the heavens went on sale, you specifically write, this book is not about SpaceX. And this statement on its face, I suppose, is true. But the book also wouldn't exist without SpaceX. To use a rather sloppy analogy, maybe even sloppier than my New York sandwich one, it's like the, you know, the character that dies at the start of a murder mystery. Technically, the story is not about them, but all the momentum of the story, the very thing that brings the story into being, traces back to that person. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the crab named Elon on Omelek Island <laughs> in the Western Pacific and the significance of SpaceX's Falcon 1 rocket in starting our modern space race. You touched on this a bit just now. What did they prove and what did they disprove about how you can make rockets, how we can get to space? I just think we're at this point now where SpaceX is landing so many rockets all the time that we're really just taking it for granted in the same way that we take for granted. We have amazing computers in our pockets and on our wrists at all times. But what was so truly revolutionary about that moment in 2008? Well, a lot. The, the whole idea was that people were just so skeptical. They still had it in their head that these things had to be done by nations and that some Silicon Valley Yahoo would never have the, the care and attention to detail to make a rocket work and that the economics of this stuff couldn't be changed. And even though SpaceX's first rocket was not reusable, Elon and the team were already talking about reusable rockets. That was dismissed out of hand as impossible. And the traditional space superpowers are essentially military contractors like Boeing and Lockheed. They're not really incentivized to change anything anyway. And for people who don't know, I mean, this is one of the most fantastic stories I think you'll ever come across, which is SpaceX was started in Los Angeles around 2001, but they had to find a place to launch their rocket and they were being blocked by the government and, and these traditional aerospace powers from using launch pads in the United States. And so they found this, this island, Kwajalein, which is about as far away from anything as you can get. It's like halfway between Hawaii and Australia. And the U.S. had run some of the old Star Wars missile defense program out of it. So it had a little bit of infrastructure. But from 2002 to 2008, SpaceX had three dozen you know, 20-somethings and a couple of adult supervisors there on this island building this rocket. And, and the first... <laughs> With a lot of beer, might I add. A lot of beer. I mean, this, this was like a Silicon Valley startup, but the first three rockets blew up and the industry was pretty much like, see, we told you so. You couldn't do it. And then the fourth one 
worked and by rocket standards, it was not the most amazing rocket. It was relatively small. It could only carry so much stuff to space, but they proved that a private company could do it. And in a fairly crafty and surprising move, SpaceX and Elon immediately canceled that rocket and moved to start working on a bigger one, the Falcon 9, which is, has subsequently become the, the workhorse of the entire space industry. We'd gone from governments to billionaires. And I think with SpaceX succeeding, outside investors for the first time thought, well, maybe we could fund some space companies too. Maybe this is no longer just the province of nation states and and the incredibly rich. Maybe there's a business here. It unlocked people's imagination and, and the sense of what was possible and really upended the status quo in a, in a major way. And again, sort of right place at the right time. I mean, there was just all this pent up energy waiting for something like this to happen. Like you said, we take this for granted and this is not me stumping for SpaceX. It's just sometimes it's important to pull back and have a picture. The United States space program in 2008 was in really bad shape. The space shuttle getting rid of that. The United States cannot take humans to space. The U.S. rockets, even the government-backed ones, ran on Russian engines. NASA was not really seen as terribly sexy. There was not a lot of money coming for space. The public didn't really care about it. China was about to start ramping up their space program. There's like every alternate universe where the U.S., if you cut to 2023, is in a miserable state right now as China is racing to space with all kinds of stuff, which they are doing, while the U.S. has really very little response. And people don't know this, and I obviously get into this in the book, but the United States is now the most exciting place for space in the, the world. We have dozens of rocket startups and satellite startups and are the envy of the world. And even though Elon is this incredibly polarizing figure. It is hard to think of like a more patriotic story, at least in in this one vein, than immigrant comes to the United States and in 20 years builds the world's greatest aerospace power that that sort of reestablishes the U.S.'s dominance in this field. And even looking at it from a perspective of just national security, self-reliance and self-interest as a country, like if we look to when the pandemic happened in 2020, And how aware many Americans became about our reliance on other countries, specifically China, for a lot of the stuff that we not only need, like clothing and food, etc., but also a lot of the stuff that was tied to national security or pharmaceuticals were all being made in a single country that is increasingly becoming our international rival. And I think 18, 20 years ago, when the space industry was, at least in the United States, kind of a non-starter, People really couldn't appreciate that in 20, 25 years now, because it's been revolutionized by private companies like SpaceX, it really is in our best national interests to be a player in this space. It's interesting to imagine a future in which SpaceX didn't happen because, you know, the U.S. would simply be unable to compete without using other countries' technology to get to space. Yeah, and if people think this is easy, just remember that Blue Origin started almost the exact same time as SpaceX. That's Jeff Bezos's space company. They have yet to reach orbit with a rocket 
that could carry a satellite. <laughs> and, and so SpaceX, it's not just luck. I mean, this, this took a lot of work and we are lucky that they succeeded because it's not easy and our position in the world could be quite different at this moment. Besides the pandemic, if you fast forward a little bit more to the war in Ukraine, once Russia started that, we, without SpaceX, would have still been very beholden on Russian space technology to do much of what we wanted in space. And that would have been a non-starter and we can't use Chinese rockets. And so it would have been a tough spot. To put a fine point on something you just said, former engineers from Blue Origin have since started companies that are now getting rockets into space faster than Blue Origin can. They are. It's true. Which just, you know, is mind-blowing in and of itself. It is. It's so funny because we always talk about it as like rocket science. The thing you bring up is like the hardest thing to do along with brain surgery. And it is difficult. I mean, I've been at companies where startups where they they have a bunch of SpaceX or even Blue Origin veterans. And, and it's still really, really freaking hard to build a rocket that works. It's pretty fascinating. But at the same time, we're at this amazing moment where all of a sudden this year, in fact, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think we've already had four new startups launch rockets, a couple of which have had some success. But we're basically about to go from you had the government, you had SpaceX, those were the only rides you could get to space to in very short order, we'll probably have about six, seven, eight rocket companies who can get to orbit on a regular basis. Yeah, it really is mind-blowing how fast the landscape has changed. A lot of what seems to drive innovation or lack of innovation, either in this space or really any space, it's a problem of first principles thinking. Now, I want to pull a couple quotes together from your book to kind of make this point. You write, quote, in the most practical of terms, the Falcon 1 established SpaceX as the first private company to build a low-cost rocket that could reach orbit. It was an engineering milestone and an accomplishment many people in the aerospace industry had dreamed about for decades. In more symbolic terms, the SpaceX engineers shattered the natural order of things, end quote. And then elsewhere, you write, quote, SpaceX had rejected many of the truths, in quotes, held evident by the old government-backed aerospace industry. It demonstrated that a novel approach to rocketry could work, end quote. And then you said, quote, much of the existing aerospace community rejected those revelations, end quote. And this reminds me of the reactions from smartphone makers when the iPhone was first revealed in January 2007 in perhaps what will be a quote that will live in infamy. Palm CEO Ed Colligan famously said, <laughs> This is back around like 2006, 2007. Quote, we've learned and struggled for a few years here, figuring out how to make a decent phone. PC guys are not just going to figure this out. They're not going to just walk in, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> Famous words. And this seems to be a pattern, Ashley, that happens over and over. You know, an industry once defined by innovation eventually ossifies, and its leaders are seemingly no longer able to think from first principles. So why do you think this happens? Why does this play out over and over, especially across tech industries, which should know better? I mean, if we want to focus on space for a second as maybe an example of how this can play out, it's this regression to conservatism and this rejection of everything that got you where you were in the first place. If you look at 
the Apollo missions, it was the summoning of great talent and, and risk-taking and ambition. And once we figured out how to build these rockets and get people to space and things went in a really, I guess, predictable direction, but a sad direction in a lot of ways where it was like, well, now you do not want to be the person that has something that goes wrong, right? Especially, obviously, when humans are involved. But even if we just talk about satellites, it's we've got a billion dollar satellite on this rocket. Let's make this rocket so perfect that nothing can ever go wrong. I don't want to be the person who is responsible for the mistake. And the whole industry ossifies and gets stuck around this principle of you don't want to be the one that brings this thing down or that changes the trajectory that it's on. And this really was the story of NASA and its contractors for decades. And there's people inside of the institution that know this and try to fight against it, but the institution is too strong. I would point to one of my absolute favorite characters in the book, who's this guy named Peter Beck, who's from New Zealand. And he started a company called Rocket Lab, which is basically the second coming of SpaceX. They've launched dozens of times. People aren't as familiar, but they are. They're the next game in town. And he just needs to buy a social media company. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> just start alienating people. And <laughs> Peter didn't even, he never went to college. I mean, th this would have been uh, like unthinkable, right? Not long ago. He never went to college. He was an apprentice at a dishwasher manufacturer. He was a very good engineer. So even without a degree, he managed to do some work at a government lab. But for the most part, he built rocket engines in a shed outside of his house in New Zealand. And he mixed his own propellants. He'd put garbage bags around his body so he didn't burn his skin off and was just this driven guy. The rocket that Rocket Lab has built is called Electron. And if you ask pretty much anyone in the aerospace industry, it is the like platonic ideal of a small, cheap rocket. You probably cannot engineer a better performing product. And, and this is a guy who did this in a country with no aerospace history, experience, industry, nothing to lean on. And so all first principles thinking, particularly in that this guy had nothing to build upon in the past. And so I use this example in the book to show how far we've come. And the United States, the Department of Defense through DARPA, wanted something exactly like the Electron for the last 30 years. <laughs> been trying to, to fund things like this. I did, could not do it, but this guy in the middle of nowhere did. It reminds me of a passage in which you describe the culture within NASA and how Air Force Brigadier General Pete Warden was trying to kind of upend the way things were being done there, but how he kept kind of just headbutting against this ossified culture that existed within the organization. You write, quote, going back to the 1960s, the ethos of both NASA and the military had been that every rocket and every satellite had to work and they would pay whatever it cost to ensure that happened. When something did go wrong, people were blamed, new codes and regulations were written, and more procedures were put into place to guarantee the same mistake would never occur again. As Fred Kennedy, the former Air Force space whiz, put it, quote, a zero defects culture had built up over 40 years. The only way to fix it was to rip everything down and start over, end quote. And this is the exact opposite of the mid-2000s Facebook Zuckerberg ethos, move fast and break things. And while we can grant that it's much easier and less consequential to break things when all you're breaking is code rather than million-dollar rockets, 
the ethos is transferable. You know, this is something that Warden was trying to transfer into NASA, but kept butting his head up against the old way of doing things. So you can find yourself getting stuck in this loop of, to go back to what you just said, Ashley, this thing needs to be built expensively. And because it's expensive, we need to spend more money to make sure it survives the trip to space. And that adds to the cost until you've created this scenario where Warden is able to use like a scrappy team to build a moon lander for $3 million. But then after the word gets out that he's done it, they say, oh no, you have to rebuild it again for $80 million. And so unless you can get out of this culture and start something new, like what SpaceX did and then Rocket Lab, you are trapped within a prison in which it's incapable to do anything efficiently. And you just get so much, all this institutional baggage. I mean, Pete Warden is possibly my favorite character in the book. His official name is Simon Warden, but he goes by Pete. (laughs) And he was, you know, he's an astrophysicist, the brigadier general. And I think of him as a bit of a, maybe alongside Elon as the most significant figure in bringing about this change was this guy who was almost fired about 18 times for pushing up against the status quo from within NASA. He, he brought in all these young people to sort of think different and try different ideas. The example you allude to is hilarious and sad at the same time. <laughs> he was pretty convinced he could make a, a lunar lander for a few million dollars instead of hundreds of millions of dollars. And NASA's immediate instinct was to do everything possible to shut it down and not even not even see if that was a reality. Because if it was, it was too damaging to all these contractors who make their living charging millions and millions and millions for their products. And so we're obviously at a time where Technology is pervasive and powerful industry and is coming under a lot of scrutiny to me in this case. And we don't know how all this will play out. I mean, the entire thesis of my book is we're about to find out what happens when capitalists instead of governments take over space. But in order for things to change, it took people like Pete and bringing this Silicon Valley ethos to an industry that had just rejected it for so long. On that note, that we don't know how this is all going to play out, you know, in the same way that a culture developed inside NASA and the American government at large that prevented a diversity of perspectives to exist about how best to build rockets and landers and satellites, in your view, what are some potential blind spots or red flags you see developing in the privately funded venture capital Silicon Valley-esque climate around space travel today? Yeah, let's go. (laughs) Guarantee you, most people listening to this show have no idea that from, say, 1960 to 2020, we had managed to put up about 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit. So just hold on to that figure for a second, 2,500. Over the the last two years, that figure has doubled to 5,000. It's going to double this year. If you fast forward 10 years, it's quite likely we're going to go from 2,500 to 100,000 satellites. There's people that want to get that number up to 200,000. And we're building what I call a computing shell around our planet that on the good side, I think, is going to 
analyze and photograph and image our planet like never before. So we can sort of see the health of things. I think we'll be able to put real metrics around things like carbon credits and what's actually happening with our climate. There's going to be a new level of truth about activities that are happening on the planet. The governments cannot just sort of spin for propaganda because they were the only ones with satellites before. We're also building a space internet that's well underway. So half the world today still cannot get high-speed internet because they can't be reached by fiber optic cables. So half the world quite quickly is going to be able to participate in our modern economy. All that said, space, especially this low Earth orbit, the spot that's right above our heads where all this economic activity is taking place, is become a capitalist exercise. I think if you look historically at what happens when humans stumble upon new territory, it doesn't always go that well. We tend to rush in and exploit it as quickly as possible. And the gamut of things that could go wrong range from satellites running into each other and creating these huge debris fields that just mess this whole thing up and that along the way destroy things like GPS, that's kind of the glue for much of modern life, to new warfare, to these new sort of territorial disputes as to whose satellites can go where. And we've already seen things like the first ever illegal satellite launch where a company snuck its satellites onto an Indian rocket, even though the U.S. government did not want them to be put into space. And so for lack of a better term, I sort of describe it as the Wild West of space. But that's the point that we're at at this particular moment. And that's what I wanted people to be aware of, because I, I don't think most people understand what's going on. About that shell that you talked about of satellites around the Earth collecting information, for many years, I've been interested in the idea of a Dyson sphere, a collection of like solar panels or even more advanced technology that surrounds the sun and gathers all of the available energy. So basically, we have unlimited clean energy that we can use at all times. It solves all of our energy problems, which, of course, then enables radical technology, et cetera, et cetera. It's something that we've been looking for as we've been looking for alien life. But it's almost like we're in the process of creating a Dyson sphere, not harnessing available energy, but instead information that is just around the Earth that allows us to know anything about ourselves and about the planet at any given time. And I think, like you said, it's easy to not appreciate how incredibly revolutionary that will be. Yes, and this information start is just step one. I mean, another entire reason I wrote this book is people have a tendency to, to listen to Elon talk about building a human colony on Mars, or we see some of the space tourism stuff. And, and yes, that's happening, and it's all well and good and interesting. But really, the vast majority of the money and the activity is in building this economy in low Earth orbit. In the near term, or the current stage, I think of this very much like go back to 1996 when the consumer internet build out is starting and we were laying fiber optic cables everywhere and we're building data centers and we're doing more or less the same thing right above our heads right now with these largely imaging satellites, these communication satellites. But just next month, we're going to see the first startup, a company called Varda, which is sending this small 
capsule into orbit that does manufacturing. They're going to be making pharmaceuticals in microgravity because molecules and and atoms behave quite differently without gravity weighing upon them. And this is the first step. All of this, look, I'm not like for or against this, really. This is like a huge gamble that we're on. But this is the first step in new industries moving to space. There are other companies that have plans for exactly what you're talking about, harnessing energy, moving some manufacturing to space so that we're not polluting the planet. And to me, this is kind of the most exciting point of all of this. I'm quite convinced this is the next stage of our technological evolution, this first bit of the computing shell, where we're going to have the internet wash over the earth as this always-on pulse, and we're going to understand our planet in new ways. I know that this is happening. The question is, does industry really start to move into low Earth orbit? And as much as people may get excited about a colony on Mars, if that's their thing, establishing this frenzy of economic activity in low Earth orbit really would be the first step to any of this other stuff, because it makes it all so much more real and commercial and changes the economics around all of this quite drastically. Yes. To put a finer point on what Planet Labs is doing, one of the four companies that you cover extensively in this book, to quote an article from Forbes, they're making satellites, quote, the size of a shoebox, yet it produces better images than satellites the size of a compact car, end quote. And that just has revolutionary implications for what we're able to do and observe. In an episode for Hello World, reporting on, quote, sci-fi supermodern air traffic control system, Leo Labs, you said, quote, more people than ever before want to put more stuff than ever before into orbit, end quote. I spoke with Andy Lapsa, the CEO and co-founder of Stoke Space. They're aiming to build their own fully reusable rockets that can relaunch every 24 hours which is an incredible turnaround time. But researching for that episode, Ashley, led me down this rabbit hole that taught me about a phenomenon, which I am sure you are very familiar with, known as collisional cascading or Kessler syndrome, in which so much debris builds up in space that collisions become inevitable and nonstop. And so to go back to something you were saying about how just the amount of satellites that are going into space are just increasing exponentially, With a company like Planet Labs and their competitors just being able to send these satellites up so cheaply on rockets built by companies like Rocket Lab and Stoke Space so often, it feels like Kessler syndrome becomes almost impossible not to manifest it. And when I asked Lapsa, how do we prevent something like this? He couldn't even really give specifics. And I don't blame him because it feels like the solution would need to be systemic. Putting stuff into space is something that any individual actor can do. You know, any private company with enough gumption and know-how, just reading your book, can get something into space. But regulating, monitoring, and space traffic controlling, everything once it's in space, can't possibly be solved by any single private actor. So it feels like a bunch of private citizens are causing a potential problem But the only thing that can solve it is this ultra-regulated collective action, which hasn't manifested yet. It just feels like a train is heading towards a wall. I don't know if I have a larger question here, but, but what are your thoughts on this? 
Well, again, this is why I wanted to write this book. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of sitting here watching all this stuff happen in real time and nobody seemed to be talking about it a lot. You know, the funniest thing to me, well, I don't know if it's funny, but I, I was amused. You know, SpaceX is building the Starlink, which is this space internet system that they've already set up many, 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 many satellites to fuel it, but want to send up the number changes, but it's something like 14,000. And SpaceX was not real secretive about this. They applied for all these licenses. They told everybody exactly what they were going to do. I was kind of shocked when the astronomer community waited until SpaceX sent up the first batch of hundreds of Starlink satellites to voice their concerns that this was going to have some negative effect on their research. These are things we could all see coming for a long time, but for some reason, even the people in the know didn't sound much of the alarm to your exactly what you said. Nobody has a good answer for this. On the plus side, most of these satellites that are going up, as we said, are going into low Earth orbit. They will deorbit and they'll burn up in the atmosphere for the most part. If you do have a collision, things get real, real fast. And The government, the United States government, has had tracking systems for objects in space, but even Leo Labs, a startup that's only a few years old, their technology is better than what the government had. They came up with some novel antenna designs. They're building a network of these antennas around the world. So on the one hand, yay, there's somebody who's uh, working on this. On the possible downside, it's like a 50-person outfit in Silicon Valley that's largely responsible for coordinating all these thousands of satellites and making sure they don't collide into each other. Some people might prefer that a regulator was really in charge of that. There's a lot of regulation around rockets and flying a rocket and the design of your satellite and what it may or may not do. There's almost no regulation about what actually happens to your satellite after you've placed it in orbit and are you responsible for disposing of it in some sound way. And to my knowledge, New Zealand, in large part because they've just become a spacefaring nation, is the only country that has legislation that makes you responsible for what you put up in space and dealing with its consequences. Most alarmingly, people may have seen this in the news, I think it was roughly 18 months ago, Russia shot a missile into one of their own satellites and broke it into thousands of pieces just to remind everybody that it can do that. And Russia's space program is currently crumbling under the weight of their stumbling economy and now this war. And you could see how a country that was once a space superpower but is no longer might not do the most rational things as commercial companies around the world charge into orbit. <laughs> just just to leave you with a, a pleasant, pleasant thought. <laughs> we could either continue to dig into that probably for the remainder of the episode, or I could do just a hard turn into a couple other questions I want to ask you while I've still got you here. You wrote, quote, For the past few years, I've had a front row seat in which to observe this peculiar moment in our shared history unfold. A journey that started off by following Musk and SpaceX has carried me to California, Texas, Alaska, New Zealand, Ukraine, India, England, Svalbard, and French Guinea, and put me in rooms reporters are not usually allowed to inhabit. There have been late nights spent in grimy warehouses with engineers trying to ignite their rocket engines for the first time 
all the way up to glorious rocket launches from South American jungles. There have been private jets, communes, gun-toting bodyguards, hallucinogens, a troop of male strippers, a rotting whale carcass in a bathtub, espionage investigations in federal raids, space hippies, and multimillionaires guzzling booze to dole the pain as their fortunes disappear, end quote. And the question that just lingers on my mind, when I've been privy to very private conversations with friends or colleagues in which they reveal very personal and just often embarrassing information to me, the very thing they say after or before they tell me that information is, if you share this with anyone else, no, I'm going to kill you. What I am telling you right now cannot leave this room. And so my question is, how and why did these founders and engineers and booze-guzzling millionaires allow you such unfettered access, knowing that if something unflattering happened, it would likely end up in your book and on the historical record forever? Because as a reader, I'm incredibly grateful for that access you were granted. But as a fellow human, I struggle to relate to the impulse that drove them to grant it. The story of Max Polyakov of Firefly Aerospace is just especially tragic. And he said some things in the book that I can't even repeat here without censoring myself. <laughs> so how and why were you granted that access? You might have to ask that. <laughs> you know, I think there's a character in the book named Chris Kemp, who's the CEO of this company called Astra. He let me follow their company essentially from the very first day it started. And, you know, I think most people would not do what Chris did, which is he told me from day one, he's like, look, we don't want anyone to know about our company. You got to follow us in secret till we do our first launch to orbit. I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know if this is going to go well or end really badly, but you're welcome to watch the ride. And I give him credit. I mean, it's like refreshing to me, at least as a reporter, when people are willing to let the unvarnished truth out there. I don't know if Chris is still happy about that decision or not. And similar case with Max. I mean, he was never that thrilled with the idea of a reporter being around, but for various reasons, we got along okay. And, and I ended up going with him to Ukraine. I think I was the second reporter, the first ever with a video camera because I've been making a documentary on all this to get into the old Soviet ICBM factories and their secret rocket launching sites in the, the forest of Ukraine. If I'm honest, I think it was probably some of the shine of the Elon book and a lot of these people think in their heads they see themselves as maybe the next Elon Musk. And there was probably something quite flattering about having this reporter toting along just in case you ended up as the the next Elon Musk. And I think that opened a lot of doors for me. People probably don't realize, even though this is a commercial industry now, it is extremely secretive and often still has government trappings around it from a national security concern. And so I found myself feeling incredibly lucky. I resisted writing this book because I did not want to be known as a space reporter. I write about so many other things in my day job and didn't want to be pigeonholed. But largely because of this access, I could not resist it. It was so exciting. Reporters try very hard, but I feel like I was able to see the ground truth. I mean, at a company like Astra, I knew every employee's name. I hung out with all of them. They just let me walk around the office. No big deal. And it's rare that we have a chance to tell what I think is the truth. So I'm eternally grateful to everyone who took a chance on me. 
Yeah, there is something ironic or poetic about a company initially named Stealth Space granting a reporter full access to the behind the scenes of their company. <laughs> There's something there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chris is, as you can tell from the book, he's a one of a kind sort of human, quite unconventional. And I think he's just willing to go about things a different way. Were there moments where something happened or someone said something and they turned to you and they were like, that's not going in the book. That's off the record. Did that ever happen? Or did they just become so accustomed to you being there that they sometimes even forgot you were recording things? Yeah, not a lot. I mean, probably not even in the sense that you're talking about. I mean, sometimes it might be like a conversation at lunch and somebody's saying something about their ex-wife or something like that. And they're like, yeah, you know, that one, that one can't go in there. And obviously reporters have rules about these things, but I also, when I'm spending that much time with people, I limit myself on this, like off the record, on the record sort of thing. I've asked a lot of them. They put a lot of trust in me. I have more than enough material. I'm not out for some like gotcha moment. I just want to write the truth. So yeah, if you misspeak on some personal thing, I would let that one go quite often. I mean, Max, who I must say, not like we're friends, but I adore him as a human and he's a fascinating character. He made it quite clear <laughs> what he would do to me if he, he didn't like some of the things in the book. He said he would get like his army of software engineers to make some deep fakes of me doing humiliating things on the internet. And anyway, yes, there's probably some stuff I shouldn't say, but I wrote what I was going to, I wrote what I saw. The nice thing is that I had so much access. I, In many cases, I tried something different in this book where I let people talk in their own voice for quite a bit of time. Sometimes entire chapters are just dialogue. Yeah, and I put people in the room of like uh, rocket launch going wrong and let the events play out for themselves. And so this is not me having some slant or opinion on it. It's you can kind of see for yourself and decide what you think. I think one of the themes of this conversation today is just a lot of folks, even people like myself who are not reporters, but kind of casually follow this space as just someone who's interested in the advancements that are taking place. There was still so much as I was reading that I just didn't know was happening, right? Like specifically, Planet Labs was one that really blew me away because I guess just satellites aren't as sexy to cover, but the stuff that they're doing is so revolutionary. I'm sure once you had finished the book and like took a step back, you know, like it's all there, but while you were in the trenches day to day, following these folks around, seeing the things they were doing, was there anything in the moment, even someone as familiar with the space as you had become, was there anything that was taking place in this space that when you saw it, it blew you away? Yeah, my God. Yes. I mean, I had so many odd experiences doing this. I mean, for one, Astra, the company we've been talking about, just so people know, they're headquartered in Alameda, which is a nice suburban town not far from Oakland. And these rockets are the equivalent of ICBMs, of missiles. And their headquarters is about like, I don't know, a thousand to two thousand yards from a neighborhood, <laughs> and I grew up in Alameda County. Yeah, well, and, <laughs> and, you know, it's like right by a soccer field. They're building this rocket in secret, as we mentioned, and I kind of thought, 
For sure. People would notice. I mean, sometimes the rocket was just standing up after they got a little bit further along. It's just standing up outside of the building. And I thought, wow, I've made this deal to keep this thing secret. But like, somebody's going to notice this, you know, and nobody did. And I just thought, geez, you can get pretty far building an ICBM in a suburban neighborhood without anyone really noticing what's happening. That was that was shocking. Some of the the launch sites, I think I've probably been to like more launch sites than any reporter. And they're incredible. They're usually by the equator. The Earth spins faster at the equator and gives rockets a little extra oomph and and tends to be in places where if it blows up, it can go into the ocean and not hurt anyone. But sort of by reason of that, they tend to be in quite poor, remote locations. I thought that a rocket launch site would be the highest end of our technology and these glorious buildings and spectacular futuristic centers, but they are not. They usually look like they're from the 1970s, which they are and haven't changed since then. It's quite, for lack of a better term, I mean, it's a bit, the countries are very poor. It's just not what you would think where you would find a a rocket launch site. And the very last one that just is immediately popping to mind is my trip to Svalbard, which I don't write a ton about in the book, but it's sort of like the farthest point you can go as a human to find land near the North Pole. And it happens to be because of where it is, it's the spot that satellites have a very clear shot of this little island as they're passing overhead to send down information. And so there are tons of these antennas in Svalbard that are pulling in our space internet and digital communications and sending it via fiber optic cable to Europe and then around the world. But there's like a seven-person team (laughs) that manages these hundreds of antennas in the middle of nowhere where there's literally polar bears and you have to have a gun when you walk outside to stay safe. And it just reminded me of the fragility of the modern world and how kind of hilarious it is sometimes and not that sophisticated. To start wrapping us out, Ashley, you know, I'm pretty bullish on the future of space travel. And I know that the public-backed approach has its strengths, its advantages, but I think you make a good case as to why it's difficult for a government-run space enterprise to stay nimble, inventive, and inexpensive. But I think I would be doing our listeners a disservice if I didn't advocate for the skeptics, the people less enamored with the idea of billionaires and venture capitalists and multinational corporations potentially controlling not only our means of getting off planet, but also watching us from above with their satellites. So in your view, what's the best steelman in favor of the skeptics position? And what would you say if you wanted to assuage their concerns? Well, I got bad news for for the people who want the government. I think this is inevitable and it's a foregone conclusion at this moment. When we talked about the 2,500 satellites doubling in the last two years, a lot of the majority of those 2,500 that existed before were either government owned or backed or some sort of scientific research. Just about the entirety of the ones that have been added are commercial satellites and governments running space. I, as I argue in the book or point out, and I think it's true, it's a historical anomaly. This could have been a commercial enterprise from the get-go with rocket pioneers in the 20s and 30s and World War II sort of shifted it into this national exercise especially around low Earth orbit. I just think of this so much like 
commercial planes, for lack of a better term, like FedEx. I mean, these rocket makers are trying to just be a ferrying system of taking satellites back and forth into low Earth orbit. The bigger question might be when you look past low Earth orbit and what do we want to do as a human species? And do we want somewhere like the moon to become a corporate exercise or do we want that to be open for everyone? Do we want Mars to be Elon Musk's planet or do we want that to be open for everyone? It feels to me like low Earth orbit is this foregone conclusion where we will repeat a lot of the mistakes we make on Earth and also get some of the benefits. And I think the huge question is just, do we want that same scenario to play out beyond as we go deeper into space? And these missions that I think are more fundamental to humanity and what it means for the human species. So, Ashley, I've had the pleasure and honor of reading a lot of great books for this show. And I think over time, and I think I just realized this as I read your book, I didn't even realize I was doing it. I've taken to paying special attention to the first and last pages of books, who authors dedicate their books to, and who they mention in their acknowledgments at the end. And your acknowledgments section, you know, I haven't read every book on earth, but I've read quite a few. And I don't think I've seen an acknowledgment section that is quite as long as yours and includes as many people. And I honestly think that who you decide to thank and the lengths that you go to describe why you're thanking them and acknowledging them in the acknowledgement section of your book speaks to the focus of your writing in general. Because whether you're covering the world's smartest robot living in Vancouver or robot farmers in California or an ex-Tesla exec's plan to recycle your batteries... Whatever technology you're covering, whether it's in this book or on your show or in your reporting in general, it's always human-centered. You never forget the human being who's behind the technology or who's being served by it or who's at risk of it. I really appreciate that because even as someone like me who is borderline obsessed with technological advancement, I find it super exciting. I think a lot of coverage forgets the human. And so I just want to say... As a fan of your work, as someone who read your Elon Musk biography back in 2015 when it came out, as someone who loved this book as well, I think as we continue to advance technologically, we risk leaving humans behind when we advance. And so thank you for not forgetting the human, and thanks for writing such a fantastic book. Well, that's very kind of you, and writing is a, it's a very solitary exercise, and all these people... During the ups and downs, I, I did this for five years, so things got dark at times, <laughs> and some people pulled me through, and at the end of the day, it's that curiosity. I just love people, and I'm glad it shines through, and I, I you know, it's, it's kind of you to bring that up, and thank you so much for having me on. You asked a ton of questions that I just haven't had, and it's wonderful to actually be able to sort of think these things through. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Ashley. Thank you so much for your time. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. 
So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.